I love Sterling. You guys are scary now, though. I mean, there's this whole like, yeah, Sterling. I mean, there's this like scary, like militant identity now that you have. Yet I would expect nothing less from David Hermes and Jermaine Moore and the team here. I, just, all right, well, never mind. I have to, um, I have to dial it down and behave this morning. Um, my mother-in-law was here, and that's not a joke. She really is sitting right here on the front row. And she said, well, I'll just sit down there and make faces at you. I said, fine, now I know where your daughter got it from because... My wife is often down there like, no, don't say that. Don't just. So anyway, Suzanne, thank you for entrusting your daughter to me almost 40 years ago. And let me tell you, it was a huge leap of faith. A long-haired, red-headed music major. I'm talking about unemployed in college. Would you like fries with that? I mean, she had to take a big leap of faith to turn her loose. But, Sue, thank you so much. Well, last, speaking of missions and nations, last Sunday, my wife and I were ministering at our church in Ternopil, Ukraine. We actually have a series. Uh, we have at least three dynamic churches in Ukraine, one in the capital of Lviv, one in a community entitled uh, Ternopil, and another in Novonostros. Don't worry about it. You have to find it on a map. And these are dynamic churches. As a matter of fact, the church in Ternopil is our largest work in Europe, Eastern or Western Europe. And it happens to also be the only church that we own. We own the property. And a businessman actually built a six-story building and built out floors five and six for the church. So it is an absolutely, JC, it's an absolutely amazing thing to go see. And the church is an every nation church. You look around all kinds of different folk, old folk, young folk, they love campus and they are getting it done. So uh, we're getting over the seven hour jet lag, but it's always a privilege to travel around and represent our world. Well, I've got a message I want to speak this morning that I have spoken for many years, but it's a message that requires, based on the day and the times in which we live, it requires a redux. It requires revisiting. And I've entitled this message, War in Peace. War in Peace. I spoke a message at the beginning of this year and have been speaking this message consistently about course correcting, about how God wants to navigate us in the midst of the storms in which we find ourselves. Has anyone found themselves in one or two storms so far this year? All right. Sorry about that. It's my fault. All right. There's a prophet stoning pit that's being dug even as we... But as I mentioned in that message and... I will reintroduce this morning, I'm not sure that in my lifetime that I have ever witnessed such a confluence of contention 
not only around my life, but around those close to me in the nation in which I proudly still call myself a citizen and around the world. I mean, I got to tell you, you pick up and you, you, whether you listen or read or, or, or view or whatever, how you consume news, I don't know about you, but I'm not getting a lot of good news. I mean, somebody's doing this, and if now we got, you know, earthquakes and hurricanes and wildfires. I was, I was on the phone with one of my prophetic colleagues this week trying to say, could you figure this out for me? I mean, if God is trying to say something, I want to get it quick before something else breaks out and breaks loose. Say, no, 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 thanks. That was helpful. And yet all of us are experiencing this, be it personally, again, be it nationally, being globally, we're finding ourselves in tremendous moments of tension and contention. And yet in the book of 2 Corinthians, Paul writes this, chapter 10. Though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. Verse 4. I'll read one more verse. It's not on the screen. The, the, the weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, in these few minutes this morning, open our ears, not just to hear something, but open our spirits that we are really listening Even as the Spirit wrote to the churches in Revelation, to him who has an ear, let him hear. So God, let us hear this morning. Divinely enable us by your Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, verse 4, if we have been around the charismatic renewal for long, and that is, by the way, if you don't know that's what you are, you are. That word charis simply means gifts. It just means life in the spirit will tell you all about it. But we pretty much believe that what is in this Bible, that it did not end at the end of the, quote, apostolic age, that we still do the stuff that they did. Aren't you glad of that? We believe in healing. We believe in the, that the Holy Ghost talks to us. We believe the Holy Ghost enables and empowers us for ministry and gives us spiritual gifts. And we exercise those gifts every day of our life. Nod your head vigorously so I'll know that you're doing that. Thank you very much. And so we look at verse 4 and we see this as part of our proof text that the weapons we fight with are not weapons of the world. And so we see a passage like that, and we're just going to get our Pentecost on. Yeah, I bind this and rebuke this, and I loose that bind and bind that loose, and in Jesus' name, my, you know what I mean? So, and so if you've been around certain parts of the church long enough, I mean, we, that's, we're going, mm, I'm going to get me some. And if it ain't there to rebuke, we'll make it up. Do you see that? got 17 wings and 10 eyes and we'll give it a greek name and shout at it because we're good pentecostals we do that and yet i don't want to key in on all of that this morning do we wage war as the world and with the weapons of the world words they promised us that when When I invented the internet, 
it was promised that we would save paper. Remember that? Use computer, save paper. So we all went out and bought these expensive computers we couldn't afford because we were being very ecologically minded. Wrong. How many of you know there are more words now than ever bombarding us? I mean, we, we're, you know, we're going to tweet it. We're going to Facebook it. We're going to, I mean, you name it, we're going to throw some words at it. Words, rhetoric, anger, anxiety, fear. These are all weapons of the world. These are not supposed to be the weapons of the kingdom. These are not supposed to be the weapons of the church. God has empowered us with a different set of weapons other than just rhetoric and anger and anxiety and fear. Some of the old folk would get excited down here. Jay, I, <laughs> Pastor Duke's not here for me to beat up, so, so you next. I'm just telling you, all right. But somehow in the church, we are supposed to be decidedly different. When you go to work tomorrow, you're going to pick up on the last thing that some leader did or some order that they signed or something going on somewhere. When you get around the proverbial water cooler, what are the weapons that you're going to pick up tomorrow? Are you going to reiterate and use the same weapons that everybody else has got? Yeah, let's talk about that. Yeah, let's talk about them, them. Come on. Let's draw aside, pull out a sword, and whack off some ears. Are we any different? Do we look any different? Do we sound any different? Are the weapons of our warfare any different? Are we in a war? You bet. All the components are there of war. There's contenders. There are multiple sides. There's a contest. There's a conflict. They're casualties. We don't want to talk about this, but there are casualties. And there's the conqueror and the conquered. And yeah, we're called to war. The passage that we just read out of 2 Corinthians, it's very clear. We do not wage war. We wage war. We're in one. But let me tell you the amazing paradox We're called to fight battles in a war that's already won. Now, that makes no sense. That don't make no sense. Like they say a little bit further south. We are in a war, yes, but we are in a war that the outcome has already been decided, and yet there are still battles that you and I are called into. It's the most amazing spiritual paradox you can imagine. And it's only there because we are not warring, not knowing what the outcome is. Listen to me. Most people that go into conflict, they have no idea what the outcome is really going to be. They're not quite sure. Well, we got more of this and they got less of this and it should, it should work out. But there's always that little variable. We're not quite sure. And yet, you and I as believers, we know the outcome. That should have been an amen moment right there. We know the outcome and yet 
we still find ourselves on the field of battle. And in as much as there are components of war, there are components of peace. And that's what I want to talk about this morning. The very first one is revelation. Revelation. Isaiah chapter 6. You know this passage. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord seated on a throne high and lifted up. His robe filled the temple and There is heavenly worship that's going on. Now, it's interesting that there's only one throne. It's God alone who is high and lifted up. How do you get enthroned? You've won. It's real simple. I'm sorry, but there's no second and thirds. There are no losers that sit on thrones. Only the victors are enthroned. And this is the picture. This is the picture that the prophet saw is that it was God who was high and lifted up. Prophet Elijah, 1 Kings 18. I'll reference this passage again at the end. having this amazing throwdown at Mount Carmel. All of the Israel is there watching this, taking on the power structure both governmentally, politically, spiritually of the day, taking on all of the false prophets that sit around, sit around Jezebel's table. They have this moment and one side miserably fails. And then Elijah calls on his God. Now, it's very interesting that prior to all this, Elijah turned and he said, how long, he's speaking to Israel, how long will you waver between two opinions? Either serve God or serve the Baals. But you've got to decide. Could I submit to you today, maybe we're not serving the Baals, but there are all kinds of other false gods out there. There are all kinds of other things that we place our security and our comfort in. And God, and and I really believe this is something that God is going to begin increasingly to call the church to. I'm going to get a little prophetic moment here. Is to find out that question, decide. Too many of us that call ourselves the church, we haven't decided yet. And we haven't decided on the basis of what we are receiving our comfort and our power from. Where are we getting our counsel from? Where are we getting our direction from? And Elijah challenges them. And this is the scariest part. And it says the people said nothing. They didn't even try, they didn't even try to rebuke him. They didn't, there was no pushback whatsoever. Who are you? They didn't say a word. And you remember this story. Fire falls out of heaven, consumes a sacrifice. Miracle occurs. And at that point, then the people do what? He's God. <laughs> Jesus, told, Jesus told the folk around him, it's the same thing with you. you okay, show us a sign. Show us a sign. But you see, in that moment... 
there was a clear declaration of victory. I mean, let me just tell you, when you're praying and fire falls out of heaven and the sacrifice that you've prepared is consumed by the approving fire of God, there's not much question anymore. God must be for us. There's no question. You don't need revelation at that point. All you got to do is just be alive and have your eyes open. There it is. And yet, what about us? Now, I don't know about you, but I've never had a moment that I've seen heaven open, that I've seen fire fall. I wasn't there at Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. I haven't haven't had many experiences that were, if you wish, that tangible, that excited my senses that I, I knew that I knew that I knew. The 99.99% is based on something else. Hebrews chapter 2, verses 8 through 9. I'm going to throw a lot of scripture at you now. It says, in putting everything under him, God left nothing, say nothing, that is not subject to him. Yet at present, we do not see everything subject to him. Listen to me. This is the gap. Between what is and what we see. In other words, God's already done it, except we might not yet, what, see it. This is why we need revelation. Because many times there are things around our life, and it's just like, I don't think anybody's in charge here. If anybody's in charge, it's the devil. And right now, I'm watching my children destroy my home, and they might be the devil. I'm not sure. Because this certainly doesn't look like, I'm sorry, that God is in control of this here situation. But we don't see everything subject to him. But just the fact that you don't see it don't mean it's not true. This is what faith is right here. It is the difference between what is and what is yet manifested in our lives. This is why if we're going to war in peace, it's not just a matter of adopting a few techniques. It has to begin with revelation. Hmm. Y'all don't get it, but stay with me. But... We see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels, now crowned with glory. Colossians chapter 2, verse 15. Having disarmed the powers and authorities. Please make note of the verb tense here. Having disarmed. There's this dangerous theological dualism that I see in many believers today that they think that God and the devil are just... It's the most exercise I've gotten in a week. Excuse me, I need to catch my breath. The church does have defibrillators, and we do have a, we do have a medical professional in the house right there. Thank you, Deborah. I have no idea what I'm talking about. 
But there's this dangerous dualism that we have. And, you know, there have been even some Christian fiction that came out some years back that, oh, somehow, if God's saints in this little hamlet would just pray more, then somehow God could be released to do a little something, something. How many of you know how stupid that is? Theologically, God is not limited by you. He is not limited by what you do or don't do. He is not limited by whether or not you get all your prayers just right. He's God. Having disarmed, he made a public spectacle of them triumphing over them by the cross. Ephesians 1, verses 22 and 23, and God placed all things under his feet. Guess what? That means you won. That's what it's going to look like in Revelation, where that snake, you mean that's it? This, 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 this this is, this is it? You mean this is all I had to do? Really? Yeah, pretty much. God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church. Who is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. And yet, many times, we don't see it. It must come by revelation. Not just by mental or theological recognition. It's not a bad place to start, but how many of you know that when the stuff begins to break loose, your mind will break loose first? It's how you process it cognitively, and it's just like, if this is all you got going on is good theology, I hate to tell you, but it will fail. Because unless theology gets grounded and rooted in revelation, it's just another neat system of belief. Did I say that? It's more than just mental or theological recognition, and it's more than just verbal repetition. We love that as charismatics. Jesus, Father God, Jesus, Father, Father God, Jesus, Father. And we sing and we repeat the verse 17 times. And we just, if we just say it enough, then somehow it's going to make it happen. Well, if you're going to do that, get your rosary and just start praying them. Now, I'm not, oh, Pastor Jim doesn't like Catholics. I didn't say that. I'm just saying that there's a type of rote, repetitious prayer that's not going to get you there either. Do I pray the same things over and over again? You bet. Jesus taught his disciples, pray like this. But let me just tell you, you can pray the Lord's Prayer with or without revelation. It's a lot better with. There are a lot of heathens that can go out there, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be. There's a lot of people. There are a lot of people that can do that. There used to be a day, believe it or not, in an institution like this where you learned that in the first grade, along with the Pledge of Allegiance and some other things that we did back in the day when you and I rode a horse to school, right, J.C.?
But you see, when revelation hits that kind of prayer, our Father, and you don't get any further than that. You mean he adopted this mess? Oh, yeah, he wanted you. And then all of a sudden, that's it. I ain't going to get through the rest of it today. That's the difference. Revelation. Number two, rest. Hebrews chapter 4, this is an amazing passage. There remains then a Sabbath rest for the people of God. Now, before I move, continue on, let me say that when we hear Sabbath, we, many, we immediately think, oh, I get a day off. Whee, I get a day off. Many of you are saying, where am I day off? Because I ain't getting one. These little people want food today. I got laundry to do for tomorrow. So I'm not just talking about six and one. I'm talking about something more powerful. There remains then a Sabbath rest for the people of God, for anyone who enters God's rest, who enters God's rest. Something key about that. You don't enter yours, you enter God's. You see, there's a supernatural exchange here. There's a supernatural transaction that is happening as we enter something that uniquely belongs to God. Anyone who enter God's, enters God's rest also rests. Please notice the priority here. Please notice God's as in plural, as in possessive rather, it's his. He rests from his own work just as God did from his. But it's a shadow. It is a reflection of something that the writer here is breaking down so that you and I might be able to understand it. Let us, therefore, make every effort to enter that rest. Another translation says, strive to enter. I like that, I like that language better. Strive to enter rest. Can we talk about another paradoxical statement for a moment? So that no one will fall by following their, meaning Israel's, example of disobedience. And there are a lot of indicators that we've not entered that rest. Many times we just work harder. I'm just, I'm going to get after it. How many of you saw on the news in the past week this, this dear 31-year-old Japanese woman that fell dead after working 159 hours of overtime? Anybody pick that up on the news? 159 hours in a month. She just died. And in Japan, they actually have a word in their language for this phenomenon. It's called karoshi. It means death by overwork. Now, that's pretty sobering. And yet, could I submit to you that there's all kinds of different deaths? Maybe you don't know of anybody that has fallen over from too much overtime. But could I submit to you that there is a type of death at work in the souls and the minds of many Christians, and they're dying by overwork? And I'm not talking about what goes on in your workplace. I'm talking about the work that goes on in your head and in your heart. Stay with me. How many of you know that as we've entered into a new covenant, Scripture declares it a better one, 
that is a different set of works. Now, the new covenant did not abolish works. Don't get me wrong. But in one fell swoop, Jesus, by his substitutionary act on the cross, what happened? He fulfilled all of the law on your behalf and on mine. That's good news, is it not? Amen. Amen. And yet the disciples could not get hold of this. They, they were like, I just, I just can't be. There's got to be something else here. And so they asked him in John, and they said, and they, they said, what must we do to be doing the works of God? I mean, here are the disciples walking with Jesus. Here's the manifestation of, of the new covenant walking with them, and they still could not get hold of the fact. You, 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 talk to me about that whole shrimp thing. Can, work, work with me on this whole, uh, and, and, and they're still struggling with this. And I love how Jesus is able to reduce things into its just just bring it right down to here real quick. And Jesus said this, this is the work, one work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. I'm not saying that we don't work. How many of you know that faith is work? Let me just tell you. The scientific definition of work is moving something from one place to the next. How many of you know that that is really the definition of faith? Is we're trying to move something from here to here. We're moving something of the intent and the purposes of God into the reality of where we live today. That's work. But you can't make it happen. All you can do is believe. And yet, we want to work it. We want to work. And we wonder, okay, there we go. That must be the rapture warning. Okay. <laughs> I didn't think I was going to make it. All right. But let me ask you a question. Are you operating within the unique capabilities and limitations of how God has designed you? See, now, we don't want to hear this. See, we're all about, we're all about supply side. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, got, I got six of the nine spiritual gifts. Yeah. Collect them all. <laughs> it's like the toys at McDonald's. You know what I'm saying? It's like, collect all nine. I mean, so, yeah, I, yeah I, I, got, I got six of the nine. Yeah. And so we want to look at everything that we can do, but how many of you know that we don't want to look at what is the flip side of the very same thing? Is with those capabilities, there are limitations. Now, I've been very wounded for years that I've not gotten called up by the Redskins to play. Why are you laughing at that? That hurts me deeply. But let me tell you, it's not going to happen. It was never going to happen. Why? God didn't gift me that way. I have certain limitations that we have built into this. And when you try to operate anything beyond its operating capacity, you're going to damage it. Your automobile has a system of checks and balances, lights on the dash, and they come on and they try to tell you certain things. Do they not? 
And there's a few you should pay attention to. One of them is the little oil thingy. Right? And it comes on and you're just like, oh, that's nice. That looks like Aladdin's lamp. Let me just tell you. You ignore it and you and Aladdin ain't going nowhere. And then you have the little thermometer thingy. You say, oh, well, that's just, oh, it's hot. Well, I'll just drive faster and cool it off. And you can ignore these things long enough, and eventually, what is your car going to do? It's going to give up the ghost. And you can get out and, you know, men do this. They open the hood and they look in like, and your wife's like, what's wrong, baby? Car broke. Because that's all we got, you know what I'm saying? And then you get to blame computer Computers! It's a module, honey. <laughs> Dealers love selling you modules, by the way. Have you ever noticed that? My window doesn't go down. It's a module. It's only $850. <laughs> Some of you haven't had those cars. And yet you try to operate that thing beyond and you get out and, and there's you and you and, and you just stupid car. Car got more sense than you got. Because it was telling you for hundreds of miles, I'm in trouble here. You need to do something because you're operating this thing beyond its limit, beyond its capacity. And yet we run ourselves physically, emotionally, spiritually. Every way we run ourselves and ignore the warning lights on our own dash. We ignore when we go to our doctor and our blood pressure, our blood sugar. When we ignore our wife telling us you are the Antichrist. We ignore. <laughs> we ignore certain things around us and all, we can't sleep anymore. And our lights are popping off on our dash. We say, I just need to work harder. I just got, I'm going to work myself through this thing. We operate beyond capacity. We're going to hurt something. It's what I call the grease of grace and the fuel of faith. And I'm not talking about greasy grace because it was very expensive. Thank you very much. But you know, there's liquids in that engine. You better have oil inside of that engine to keep everything lubricated. That's how the grace of God works. It keeps all the working parts of your life from grinding against one another. And then there's the fuel of faith that empowers it all. Romans 12, and we, again, we use this as a proof text for spiritual gifts. Verses 3 through 6, it says, but... In accordance with the measure of faith God has given you. Oh God, I need more faith. I need to. No, I'm sorry. But God mets out faith. Have you ever noticed that we want more faith, but it's most of the time it's in the moment we need it that God releases it to us. My grace is sufficient. Same way. Hmm. It says, we have different gifts according to the grace given us. 
And we need to use them in proportion to our faith. One of the indicators that pops off in our dash is stress. Stress. Stress is striving. Honored by the world many times. And the cardiologist and the psychologist, they call it something else. Time Magazine wrote this some years ago. Quote, doctors and health officials have become to realize how heavy a toll stress is taking on the nation's well-being. According to the American, Family, American, American Academy of Family Physicians, two-thirds, listen to this number, two-thirds of office visits to family doctors are prompted by stress-related symptoms. And in the past decade, it's become very apparent that many people in our society are under constant and destructive stress as life for them reaches a pace that offers little time for any restorative rest and retreat. Wow. This is not the inheritance and the heritage of the people of God. Are you hearing me here? Do you know what stress is for a believer? It's because you strived of yourself rather than striving to enter his rest. That's the manifestation of it. And you hear it in in believers all the time. Stress and worry. Ugly stepsisters. You hear it believers in frantic intercession. My wife and I had a good friend in another church where we, we built for many, many years. And this, this dear woman, she loved God. She loved her family, but she was a nut job. She's crazy. You ever met these crazy spiritual people? Cra- crazy spiritual people. Now, I know he said, that's not a very pastoral thing to say. This lady was nuts. My wife is down there giving me one of them looks. This is like, you're digging it, baby. You fix it. But this dear lady, when you prayed with her, she just prayed like this. And she just, and you know, oh, in Jesus' name. And she just, and shunda, shunda, shunda. I mean, it was just. And it's just like, if God had anything to say, she wasn't going to hear it because what was fueling her intercession was not intimacy and, and faith derived from that intimacy. It was worry. It was stress. It was frantic. And you can hear believers, and they pray that way. They beg and they plead, God, oh, God, Jesus, I know, you, I know you're busy and you miss my situation, so I'm going I'm to break it down for you. Here it is. God had missed it. He had missed it. Don't hear me. And worry never emanates from faith. It always comes from a place of fear. So what do we do? Scripture is so clear on this. Matthew 11, come to me. That's what the Bible says. Matthew 11, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened. What does it say? I will give you Come on. It's just like, Pastor Jim, tell me something I don't know. Then live it. I can quote the Bible just like you can, but that doesn't mean that I've done this. 
come to me and I will give you. We want God to give us all kinds of things. Spiritual gifts and money and hair growth and all kinds of things that we're asking God for. Skinny jean. But are we asking God to give us rest? When was the last time that you came to Jesus and asked him, God, give me rest? Hmm. Interesting. Then my last point is resilience. It's when we get mashed up, when we get stressed and pressed, do we bounce back? Remember Elijah James said about Elijah, he was a man just like us. Now, he was talking about fervent prayer. That's what James was talking about. So just so the theologians in the room are not upset with what I'm getting ready to do to this verse, I'm telling you what it means and what the intent of the passage was. It says that Elijah prayed a fervent prayer, and for three and a half years it didn't rain, then he prayed, and it started to rain again. A man just like us, the fervent prayers of a righteous man will do what? Availeth much. That's what it says. And that's what James was trying to say to us. But could I submit to you? 24 hours after he had seen God move in one of the greatest recorded miracles of the Bible, the threat of a very bad lady sent him running into the wilderness for his very life. And could I submit to you, Elijah was the man. I mean, you don't get up in front of an entire nation and 850 very embarrassed, angry, tired prophets. You don't challenge the leadership of the day, the way that he did, and not have a little something going on. The greatest victory, perhaps, of his entire life. And Jezebel says, I'm coming for you. <laughs> now, I'm sorry, but I don't picture Elijah as sort of a flight of a flight and fight kind of guy. You don't picture him as a flight kind of guy. And yet he did in this moment. What changed? What kind of fatigue had he been carrying? What kind of yoke had he been unyoked with God in in three and a half years that all of a sudden it culminated with one threat from one woman? Now, I know it's not quite that simple. I understand that, what she represented spiritually. But Elijah had already done the heavy lifting. And Elijah was a man just like us. Saints, hear me. If it could happen to him, it can happen to you and me. Elijah lost his resilience. You see, resilience is, if you can picture this, it's like a balloon. And a balloon, as you know, if it's fully inflated, you push on it, what happens? It pops right back out. That's exactly right. But have you ever seen a mylar balloon that begins to get tired? And gravity begins to take over. And all of a sudden, it's like all these kind of little wrinkles and dents and everything. When, when you bought that balloon from the Wegmans, it didn't look like that. 
But now you can push on it, and everywhere you push on it, there's an indention that stays there. And the other thing that happens is that that balloon loses its resilience, as it loses its buoyancy, what happens? Gravity takes over, and what happens? It gets drugged down to the ground. Could I submit to you that's exactly what happens to you and me? Is that we lose, is that the pressure on the outside becomes greater than the pressure on the inside. You see what happens? And then that's where we get marred and dented. That's where we get bent right there. And yet, what does it say in the Bible? It says, be filled with the Spirit. This is why when you come to a moment like life in the Spirit, it's not a check, I'm going to join the church. No. You have to be continually living in this place of being not just energized by, but the very breath of God who is the Holy Spirit, the pneuma of God on the inside, is that force is greater than the forces on the outside so we don't lose our buoyancy. Job chapter 12 verse 10 says this, in whose hand is the soul of every living thing and the breath of all mankind. This is not even a Pentecost statement right here. But it's the breath of God. It's the life of God that we are allowing that pushes forth so that where we've been bent in, mashed in, it says, boop, and it pops back out to the design that God has for it. What have I said? 1 John 3.19, this then is how we know that we belong to the truth and how we set our hearts at rest in his presence. Saints, listen to me. If you're trying to find the rest on YouTube videos, vacations that are anything but whatever kind of little respite that you're finding that you think is going to give you rest, there's only one place that we can set our hearts at rest, and that's in his presence. The Bible says, come to me, and I will give you. Saints, listen to me. I would love to be able to say, that all of that, that the stress around your life and your family and your workplace and the nation and the nations. I'd love to say that there's pending revival and the winds of God are going to blow it away. I'd love to tell you that. But I would be lying to you. Not only prophetically, but pastorally. But what I can say to you is greater is he than is in you than him that is in the world. Pray with me this morning. Lord Jesus, we recognize that yes, there's conflict. It's all around. But God, that you have given us yourself that we can war in peace. It's not getting reduced to just tips and tools and techniques and weapons. Pray this prayer and get this result. But God, as we enter your presence, we find rest. Lord, give us greater revelation 
Let us see what the prophets saw, that you are high and lifted up. You are in a place of absolute victory over everything. You say that the hearts of the kings are in your hands and you direct their path as in a water course. You're in charge. Give us revelation of that fact, not just theological reality. God, rest. Let us strive to enter. Show us what that means for each one of us here individually. And God, where we've lost our resilience, our bounce back, We've gotten fragile and brittle. As mama used to say, on our last nerve, God, restore that resilience by your spirit. Fill us afresh. God, come and bless and love this people. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you, church.